Hey everyone, welcome to this week's show. Now, can you believe it's only a few short weeks until the end of 2021? I know, crazy, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but these last couple of years have been what I call a vortex of time. Many things have slowed down, they've sped up. It's been chaotic, it's been uncertain. Now, my eldest daughter turned 10 over the weekend, and it only seems like she turned five yesterday. Now, I'm sure if you're a parent listening to this, you know exactly what I am talking about. So a quick mention that if you are in the process of planning for 2022, or you are getting ready to start your planning over the holidays, we have six places remaining for our Scale Up Your Business Empire Elite Mastermind for 2022. What is it? Well, over the last few years, I've helped many entrepreneurs take their business to the next level. And I found that the fastest breakthroughs always happen when you're working in a group of top performers. So think of Empire Elite as having your own personal and confidential board of directors. Twice a month, you've got me as your coach alongside a group of powerful leaders. And the program runs from February 2022 all the way until November 2022. The focus, of course, is growing and scaling your business both organically, so think customers and cash flow, and also strategically, so think partnerships and acquisitions. I also want to be able to teach you how to thrive in uncertain times. Plus, as I said, you've got a peer group of top performers who will hold you to a higher bar. The, the value, if you think of it, from this sort of program is the caliber of the community that you have around you and the support that you bring to one another. So if you're interested in this, send me a quick note on LinkedIn and I'll get back to you with some more information. As I said, we have six places left for 2022. Perhaps this is the year that you want to take your business to the next level. Okay, this week on Scale Up with Nick Bradley, we have Josh Linkner. Now, Josh is a creative troublemaker. Well, that's what he calls himself anyway, and we're going to get into that today. He's a tech startup leader. He has started, built, and sold five companies. He's had plenty of failures there too. He's an innovation expert studying human creativity for 30 plus years, a New York Times bestselling author. He's got four books on innovation, creativity, and reinvention. He's a venture capital investor. He's invested in over 100 startups. A dad, a husband, he's got four kids. He says he's hopelessly in love with his wife. He's a jazz guitar player, obsessed with playing complex and dangerous jazz classics, and we're going to get into that. And finally, he is a lover of greasy pizza, and he says that Detroit pizza is the best. I just started saying creative troublemaker, and that seemed to fit. To me, what it is, is somebody who is unwilling to accept the world as it is. Someone who is willing to consider what's possible instead of what was. So what is cool about today's conversation? Well, Josh passionately believes that all human beings have incredible creative capacity. Now I said all human beings. So whether you believe you're creative or not, today's episode will inspire you to perhaps unlock some latent innovation genius to grow and scale your business. I think what we need to do is think of ourselves as jazz musicians, where you're trading the baton of leadership, where it's a little messy, where you're bringing out the creativity of, of every team member. And I actually think that that's uh, gone maybe from a nice to have to becoming mission critical. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Josh Klingler. Hi, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here again, once again, for another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I am delighted to have Awesome guest for you today. I have Mr. Joss Linker onto the show. He is considered a 
creative troublemaker. We're going to get into that. The thing I like about Josh most actually is he's massively into his jazz and he's massively into his greasy pizzas. So we're going to talk about all of those things. But listen, to, to embarrass you a little bit, Josh, as you're here, um, you have founded multiple businesses. In fact, you've exited, exited multiple businesses. Uh, you have been a champion for creativity across multiple different things. I mean, we'll talk about it in the context of business and innovation today because it is scale up your business, but it's much more than that. You've been involved in venture capital, private equity, published author of multiple books and been recognized uh, twice as the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and also the recipient of the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. And you still look really young. So how have you done all that in such a short amount of time? <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, it's great to be with you and you've done amazing things as well. I, I'm young. I look younger than I am. I'm 50. I look like I'm about 15, probably because I I'm vertically challenged. But uh, it's, it's nice of you to say. And, and I'm just great to be with you, man. So creativity. And, you know, I, we'll start off with with the, the title that, you know, has been sort of put here, creative troublemaker. What does that actually mean? <laughs> so most people think that trouble is a bad thing. And it can be a bad thing, but I like to think of it as a good thing. And for me, being a creative troublemaker, I've often wondered, like, what do I say to someone when I'm introduced at a cocktail party? And I just started saying creative troublemaker, and that seemed to fit. And, and to me, what it is, is somebody who is unwilling to accept the world as it is. Someone who is willing to consider what's possible instead of what was. Someone who's willing to poke a little bit and prod and challenge conventional wisdom and, and a willingness to, to reimagine and rethink uh, our, our approaches. And so to me, I like doing that. I like, I like taking a look at something that may be working just fine and imagining, okay, what would it look like if we deconstructed it? What would it look like if we improved it or upgraded it? And so I kind of spend my life doing that, whether it's with creating music or creating businesses or writing books. And when did you discover this? When did you find that this was kind of going to be your life's work, your mission? Well, as it's probably in most cases, it wasn't as clear as it is yeah. now. You know, now it sounds fairly, fairly clear, but, you know, I, I started, I grew up in the city of Detroit. So I'm in Detroit, Michigan, a part of the United States that has seen a lot of trouble. Uh, I didn't grow up in a wildly affluent family or anything. I, I had to kind of fight for what I, what I wanted. And, um, I always felt a little bit like an outcast, like a misfit and, and not in a necessarily positive way. It wasn't, I didn't feel better. It probably felt worse more often than not, but I always felt that if there was 20 people in the room, there was like 19 of them and one of me. And I was always just a little bit odd. I liked weird music and I liked doing things. I always thought of myself as, as sort of different. And, and I pursued jazz music originally. I, I put myself through uh, university playing music, still play today very regularly. And, uh, and this, all these weird influences between, you know, sort of music. I was a tech nerd when I was in high school. I, I used to write software on an old beat up computer in the early 80s. And all these things sort of coalesced into this concept of being an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what that was growing up, frankly. But, uh, you know, I started my first tech business at age 20. And over the next 30 years, I've started, built and sold five of them and helped another hundred or so get off the ground. Wow. And, and was it something that, you know, as you said, you discovered it at some point, was there anything that actually was the catalyst of that? Was it someone you met? Was it an influence? Uh, you know, someone who mentored you perhaps? I don't think it was someone as much it was a, as a concept and it really gets back to my, my love of jazz music. And I know there are people listening that don't love jazz and that, that's okay. But, but whether or not you like listening to it, just, just for a moment, it's kind of cool because it's a real time art form. In other words, you're composing and performing in front of a live audience simultaneously. So unlike a painter who can go back and correct something, you're literally making stuff up as you go and it's being consumed in real time. And so there's an element of rawness and danger. And, and it, there, there's a confidence that doesn't come from thinking you're going to play everything right. The confidence comes from knowing you're going to screw things up multiple times, but you figure out how to course correct. 
And so I just love the principles of jazz and jazz, by the way, if you've ever listened to it, they're generally small combos. They're not giant orchestras. And it's this very collaborative thing. So I might take the role of leader for a while as I'm soloing. And then I take the role of supporting cast and make sure that your solo sounds great. And other times we bounce ideas off of one another. And so I just love this sort of raw, dangerous, messy art form. And what I found, and again, I hadn't contemplated contemplated this when I was learning to play is that those skills and mindsets translate perfectly to not only starting, but scaling up a business. If you think about the modern leader today, you have to be able to make decisions in the face of ambiguity. You have to play beautifully, even though the notes aren't on the page, you have to make stuff up. You have to screw things up and course correct. You have to collaborate. And so I learned that the, the skills that I, I discovered playing jazz are perfectly situated to help business leaders grow and thrive. Wow. Do you know what? I never appreciated this. I want to go a little bit deeper here. I think you'll enjoy this as well, considering you're so passionate about jazz. I mean, I listen to jazz, right? But I wouldn't say I'm fanatical about it or anything like that. I've been to jazz bars. I like that. And I really appreciate what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing, all those things, right? But I've never really understood what's going on. I just kind of like it, right? Because it's it's a bit messy. It's a bit scrappy. It's It's just interesting. And I particularly like the connection to your point between, you know, the artists that are performing, because you can see that you can see that they're very present, right? And again, I'm saying stuff that you've done for years. So you're probably laughing behind the scenes there, but let me, let me just understand this for a second. So the actual concept of jazz, as you describe it, is not really well formed. It's not really well structured. It's, it literally in any set or any, any night that you're performing, it can go anywhere with, with, with maybe a bit of a list of songs you're going to start, but, is that right? There, there's, a, there's very close. So jazz, the best way I describe jazz to someone who's not studied it, it's a conversation. So you and I are playing jazz right now. You're not reading from a script. I, you're listening. You're a very, very good listener, by the way. And you're picking up on something I say and you build on it. And, and we're having a conversation. So we're using words. But in music, we do that with notes. And when, so let's say you and I were in a jazz group and we played together every night for for 10 years in a row. And every night we played a particular song every night, every night it would be different. Just like if you and I had dinner for 10 years in a row, we'd have a different conversation every evening. And so the interesting thing is that it's not only a conversation though, between you and I as fellow musicians, it's you and the audience. So they're to Mm. a degree influencing the conversation. It's also you in the outside world. If you had a a fight with your wife, like that's going to affect your playing or or you're angry about Brexit, that's going to affect your playing. And so it's this multifaceted conversation between a musician's feelings and instincts and their raw creativity combined with the others that they're collaborating with, combined with the audience and outside circumstances, all coming together. And and actually in jazz, there is a structure, but it only represents about 1% of the notes that are played. So for example, you and I, there is a structure. Like if I just started talking gibberish, you wouldn't understand the language. So we're, we, we do have a structure, even though it's flowing naturally, the way we speak and end a sentence and all that. So similarly in jazz, there are cues, there are there is some structure. It's not just random, but most of it is using that structure and creating in real time, which is what I find so thrilling and delightful. And, and is jazz, in terms of all the different forms or art forms of music, is jazz the only one that really, really connects in that way? I, I think so. There, there are other forms that, that, that have some improvisation, you know, blues people will, will improvise a bit, but jazz is, is, there is structure again, but it's probably the most open and, and you really have the ability to take things in lots of different directions. I mean, there might be a, a, a song that the Beatles played and then someone does their own interpretation of it. But there are some jazz songs, jazz standards that have been performed thousands of times and recorded thousands of times, and they all sound markedly different. 
And so it really is a, it's more of a platform for expression. There's really a blank canvas that the, that the artists get to create every night in real time. The other thing though, I would say that's mm -hmm. cool about jazz as it relates to, to, to our listeners here about scaling up their business is that, so part of what makes jazz work is this, this, it's a safe zone. In other words, if I go up on stage and I, I play it really safe, I get laughed off the stage. But if I take a responsible risk and really screw something up, if I play a bad note, I just play it twice more and call it art. Everything is fine. And, and kidding aside, that, that all my collaborators understand and respect that that's part of the process. And so if, if you and I are in a jazz group, you're going to feel enabled to take those responsible risks and bring your creativity to the surface. Whereas if you're in some strict classical orchestra and you make one mistake and the, and the conductor comes over and whacks you on the head with the baton, you're never going to try anything again. So I think that the, the metaphor of a jazz combo enables innovation, just like the way modern uh, companies need to be structured to enable innovation among their teams. Yeah, good. I want to bring this now into business. I was I was waiting for the appropriate time. Um, but I also, you know, you, may, you said something quite interesting there about, let's call it something that might have too much structure. So the orchestra where every note is precise versus, you know, jazz, which is maybe the other end of that spectrum. How does that then play into business? So if a company has a very, very strict culture, and there are examples of companies that have done that and been successful versus one that has a lot of creativity, a lot of flexibility. What's your view around that? Is there a happy medium there or is too many boundaries, too many boxes that's never going to really unleash a company to its full potential? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm really passionate about it. It's a great question. So I think in the past, the metaphor of leadership was that of a classical orchestra. Person standing in the center of the room, that's the CEO, and he or she no longer plays an instrument themselves. And the whole role of that leader is getting people to play the notes exactly as they're written on the page. It's precision and accuracy and alignment. The problem is we're living in a different world now. Today, we live in a world of chaos and, and disruption and, and, and hyper growth and fierce fist fighting competition and, and, and new technologies and market dynamics that are unprecedented. So I don't think we can afford to play classical music anymore. I think what we need to do is think of ourselves as jazz musicians, where you're trading the baton of leadership, where it's a little messy, where you're bringing out the, the creative creativity of, of every team member. And I actually think that that's a, a gone maybe from a nice to have to becoming mission critical because many of the quote unquote hard skills of the past have become commoditized and outsourced and automated. So then you say, well, what's left? How do we drive competitive advantage when most of it has been extracted? And furthermore, I would say that competence alone is no longer a competitive advantage. That's just the table stakes. And so where can companies and, and individuals really stand out and really thrive? It's only one place, which is bringing human creativity to, to the surface as a, as a manageable, deployable, thoughtful resource in order to drive productive results. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a, you remind me actually of a book I read probably two decades ago by a guy called Lou Gershner who was the, uh, the famous CEO of IBM. Have you read the book? It's called something like uh, Teaching Elephants to Dance or something like that. I did read the book. I did. Yeah, it was a great book on, on, on culture and, and also where things can go wrong. You know, the whole idea that back then IBM, had you had to wear a blue suit and a white shirt, right? And if you parked in the wrong space at one point in the day, then everything would just collapse. And then, you know, he came in and decided to wear like, you know, a, a, you know denim jeans. Or something like that and everything just capitulated because of it but i but i think you know that was back then and even back then there were the signs of this kind of very disciplined hardcore culture not working 
now you've got, you know, we're, we're recording this, um, shall I say COVID's fit, you know, come, coming out of COVID, we're sort of still in it, but anyway, but the point is there's, there's a massive change in the whole dimension of how people work. There's a massive, massive dimension change in terms of trust with people, right? In terms of, you know, they're not necessarily always going to be working in the way that they were. So creativity, I'm, I'm really just curious about how you enable creativity and innovation in a business, you know, it says, it, 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 I, I expect that it can't be structured. It has to be something that has some form of organic nature to it. Well, the good news actually is it can be structured, uh, okay. which is kind of cool, actually. You know, funny, we think of creativity as like this weird, squishy topic that it just, you know, you get a lightning bolt of inspiration from the heavens and you can't manage it like a resource, but actually you can. And so okay. in, in my career, in the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of time studying human creativity, specifically in organizations. And, and my, my most recent book, um, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, uh, was the culmination of extraordinary amount of research, over a thousand hours of research, academic research, neuroscience, personal interviews with CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs. And, and what I tried to do is decode this weird, mushy topic. What are the habits? What are the tactics? What are the cultural attributes? What are the, what, what are the mindsets that are needed to build a culture of innovation and to sustain a culture of innovation? And the funny thing is, like jazz to you might seem really weird and all, all, off the, all over the place, but you know there are certain chord structures. There are certain scales. that you And once you know the basics, then you can get on with it. And creativity is exactly the same way. It's not just by plucking people and hoping that they're creative. We as leaders can manage toward creativity and in turn unlock incredible results. Okay, let's play with this a bit, right? So I like to get practical for people listening. So, so you go into an organization that the CEO says, could it, be, could it be me in the time? We're not very creative. We're not very innovative. Josh, what do we do? Where do we start? So starting point number one would be to respectfully challenge that assumption. <laughs> Good. So, and, and by the way, it's but not we're, just my Josh, we're not creative. <laughs> right. So, so my, my, my response would be, again, with, with, with great admiration and respect, that, that human beings are creative, period. So I, I hear this all the time, and it always breaks my heart a little bit when someone says, oh, I'm just not a creative person. Truth is that the research is crystal clear that all human beings have the ability to be creative. That's part of who we are. We are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. Now, there's a lot of things, reasons people will say that. One is we equate creativity with a particular way it looks. Like you have to paint oil on canvas or you have to play music like I do. But you can be creative in the way you finance a deal. You can be creative in the way you hire. You can be creative in the way you, you, you build financial models. So each of us can be creative in our own ways, but truly we all can be creative. It might be the way that we creatively solve a problem or communicate with a team member, but we all have an ab ability to be creative. The second thing I would say, you know, where, where do you start? Once you recognize that you say, okay, great. Who does it apply to? Often in organizations, we say, oh, the creatives, they sit up on the second floor. And I would say, again, with great respect, that the creatives should sit everywhere. What a shame if we hire people for their brilliance and don't let them use it. And so I think it can, can, can transcend the, the R&D lab or, or the marketing department. Every, there, there's a room for creativity in every box on an org chart. So if we can get to that conclusion, then the question is how. And then when you get to how, it's how, what, what, what are the habits? What are the tactics? What are the mindsets? And what are the rituals? Well, let's get into it because <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm looking through, I mean, I'm looking at your, your book actually, as you're, um, as you're speaking as well. I love the way you frame some of the obsessions of innovators. We'll get into that at some point tonight as well, but let's, let's, let's take that forward. So, you know, play role play a little bit here. So, okay. So you've convinced me that creativity can exist everywhere because my definition of creativity has now changed by the way, 
So I'm now thinking, oh, actually, maybe it is about problem solving. Maybe it's about a different angle of doing something that may feel a little bit scary because I haven't done it before, but perhaps it's going to produce a better outcome. Okay, so that's where I'm at now. All right, it's cool. So, so how do we do this? Do I have to change the cultural values on the wall? Do I need to run a whole heap of workshops? Do I send people on training courses? What do I do? Awesome. So first thing we want to do is, 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 is do one little double click on what does it look like? So I've, we hear the word innovation. Think about that as all capital letters. And yeah. to me, all capital letter innovation is like inventing the internet or the movable type or you know the, the printing press. And, and these are big innovations, but we normally equate the word innovation with stuff that changes the world. But in that context, it's out of reach for most of us. Most of us can't make a billion dollar bet. So therefore we say we can't be innovative. But I would say, let's first we got to look at there's three flavors of innovation. So all capital letters, every letter in that word capitalized, that's the crazy big stuff. But one, one, one click down is the word innovation just with a capital I and the rest lowercase. And those are the innovations that aren't once a generation. There are a couple times a year for every, of, every one of us. When you were taking over a small business and scaling it up, you, I, you said you're not creative. Again, I would respectfully disagree because you made hundreds of decisions. Hey, let's pursue this market channel. Let's cut back on this. Let's, let's pursue a more efficient way to, to, to deliver a product to a customer. And so these are, you might have three or four big ideas a year that, that move the needle. That could be a 20% growth or a 13% cost savings. But the one I really love the most is if you go one more click and all lowercase innovation, I call these big little breakthroughs, micro innovations or daily innovations. And these are so cool because they're often looked down upon, but they're everywhere. Every one of us can be cultivating a couple a day. And each little innovation may not change the world, but they add up to big stuff. We're building critical skills in the meantime, and they are way more accessible and less risky. And so when you think of innovation like that, and most people are intimidated. Innovation, I can't invent a rocket. Yeah, you don't need to. You can come up with the teeniest little thing. How about the way you conduct a job interview? And so when we think of ourselves as everyday innovators, then I'll get on to your question about tactics. But once we have that foundation that we're all creative, creativity applies to every single role. And every one of us can be an everyday innovator by cultivating small micro innovations rather than looking for moonshots. Now we've reframed things and we're ready to go. So before we get into tactics, how much of this is a mindset shift or a, or a perspective change? A good chunk of it is a perspective change. Um, and, and by the way, though, it's not only for the sake of it. And, and in the book, I cover you know, extensive research from McKinsey and, and, and many others, World Economic Forum. They, they recently pulled hundreds of, of CEOs around the world and said, what are the most important job skills needed in the modern workforce? Four of the top five tied to human creativity. They, they're saying different things, creative problem solving, inventive thinking, but, but they're all tied to creativity. So what we've seen again and again and again is that the organizations that profit the most, that grow the most, that have the biggest material uh, liquidity events and equity value are, are driven not by you know, squeezing the middle, not by extracting value by putting your foot on the neck of somebody and making them work harder, but by unlocking creativity. And so my point is, it's not just for the sake of it. I, I, I follow applied creativity. In other words, I don't want people to run down the halls and paint the walls with purple crayons. I want people to use creativity to drive shareholder value and scale up their business. Yeah, cool. Okay. And the other thing that comes to mind here a little bit is, is, you know, I love, I love the expression of, you know, innovation, all small letters, right? Because, because I think about innovation in terms of, you know, you can innovate in a process, you can innovate in a message, you know, so even, even if a product isn't going to be the next moonshot, right? You can actually change things around. There's a really good example here. I'll just share with the audience as well, a brand called Innocent that were um, acquired by Coca-Cola. 
and they were a smoothie company. So making fresh juices, all that sort of stuff. And their founder, Richard Reed said, listen, I don't have the resources. I don't have the capital to compete with all these massive drinks companies. But what I can do is do a hundred small things. And those hundred small things that in any individual one could be copied, but the compound effect of those small things is going to make me win. And he did things, and you like this. He did things like, you know, wrote on the cartons, you know, five apples, 20 oranges, blah, blah, blah. He went down to a big music festival called Glastonbury here in the UK, had a, a van and two bins either side, you know, should we, should we survive, should we not? And he had all these people throwing, obviously, their empty cartons into that, and then he took that to the, um, the VCs to get funding. But that, you know, again, small things, but they all added up to a big result, which I think is, you know, just to give an example of what you're expressing. That is exactly right. And, and when, when we look at innovation like that, you're exactly right. It's a mindset shift. Then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I, I can do this. this. This applies to me. I don't have to be Elon Musk. And actually a, a fellow countryman of yours, a good example. So I interviewed all these you know, famous people for the book, but I also interviewed normal people, like everyday people. And one of my favorite stories from the book was a guy named Trowin Resterick. So Trowin lives in London. And he's not a fancy guy. He's not a celebrity billionaire. He doesn't wear $2,000 suits. He wears like wrinkly pants and old loafers. Oh, I love but, him but, already. Right, and me too. <laughs> but so Trowin was, was looking at a problem. And it turns out in central London, the single biggest environmental challenge is cigarette butt litter. And in fact, in many large cities around the world. And it seems to be this very difficult problem. People try to clean it up, unsuccessful. It poisons small children or animals that might ingest mm. them. Bunch of wasted money. It's just a big, ugly problem. So Trowin says, huh, maybe I could apply some creativity here. And keep in mind, this is a normal guy. He's not, he's not a superstar, but he invents something called the ballot bin. And here's how it works. Let's say you and I just finished some fish and chips in a London pub, and we walk out into the streets. We're about to throw our cigarette on the ground until we see this metal box. It's a bright yellow metal box mounted on a pole, and the front of it is glass. So, huh, we're curious. We get a little closer and there, there's a divider down the middle of it. So there's really two sections. At the top, it's asking you a two-part question. Like, which is your favorite food, pizza or hamburgers? And there's a little receptacle where you're basically encouraging smokers to vote with their butts. So I would take my cigarette butt, put it in another hole that says pizza. It falls on top of these other cigarette butts so I can see sort of like a running tally. It's almost like two bar charts next to one another. And here's the thing, it's simple and low tech, and it didn't require a million dollars, and it didn't require regulatory approval, but it worked. And Truman tells me that when these are installed, they reduce cigarette litter by 80%. So Truman took this simple idea, and now he's in 27 countries around the world. He's doing this amazing stuff. And, and the thing I like about this story is that when I see Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, I say good for them, but it's hard to see me. It's hard to see ourselves in that. Yet when I see Truman, I say, you know what? I could have come up with that. Any one of us could have come up with that. And that to me is the beauty of creativity and innovation. It is accessible to every single one of us, you and me and everyone listening. Yeah. I mean, he gamified that, didn't he? I mean, you know, it changed the frame. So therefore it was frame. interesting to do something. It's funny. I was, I was teasing you at the very beginning. You know, I, I had a bit of an epiphany a number of years back where what I used to say when I was in the world of corporate, I spent a lot of time working in the media companies like News International with Rupert Murdoch and those sort of things. And I used to say, I had this kind of like, I'm not creative, right? And I didn't, I didn't believe I was back then. I thought I was more, more process and structure and I didn't quite get the nuances and all that stuff. But I had an epiphany a few years later where I, I realized that I was incredibly creative within my lane, right? Within the areas that I 
cared about, could pay attention to and problem solve and those sort of things. So, you know, when I say I wasn't creative beforehand, I can see what you're talking about now that actually creativity does exist everywhere. But again, you have to be open-minded to it. You have to be aware of that as well and not be closed mind to just any of the purest definitions. So yeah, let's not, let's not define our creativity by what we can't do. Let's focus on what we can't. Hmm. It's funny. Like I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I tried and believe me, you don't, you don't want to see me near a dance floor. And so the point is that we each can express our creativity in our own ways. And back to my buddy Trowin, I was, I was talking to him, like I was an hour deep and I said, you know, something like, wow, that's so creative. He go, and he, he paused like, yeah, I don't think of myself as a creative person. I was like, really? You're like, unbelievable. Why not? And he said, you know, I didn't take music when I was a kid. I wasn't very good at art. And my only point is let's not let a classical definition define us. Let's let, let's let our own creativity define how we want to use it. Okay. So before we get into tactics, let's do one more myth bust, a bit of role play again, if that's cool. So I've now, I'm the CEO. I've now, I, you know, you've come in and I'm now into this. I, I get it. Okay. And I go to my, uh, let's go my board or my CFO and I say, okay, we're going to invest in, okay, this may be the wrong way of expressing it, but I'll express it how I feel. Uh, we're going to invest more in creative and innovation in, in this organization. I believe it's going to make some big changes here. And the board comes back and says, oh, it's all fluff. It doesn't drive the bottom line. It doesn't drive value creation. And I go, oh, Josh, come back here, mate. We now need to, <laughs> what's your answer to that? To that kind of very, um, financial metric, you know, probably my private equity background. Let's call it somewhat naive comment. Well, I'm glad you asked that because you're a lot of people think that. So yeah. fascinating. So MIT here in the US, along with Forbes magazine, um, a few years back created a, a study and they try to look at public market data of companies to ascertain how, how investors are perceiving innovation and does that affect stock price? So mm -hmm. what they did yep. is they looked at all this stock, this data, they looked and they could, they, they extracted for everything else, discounted cash flow and assets on hand and brand value and all the things that we would ordinarily set a company for. And then they, they tried to, to tease out, do, do investors pay a premium or do they assign a penalty based on the perception of innovation? And so they came up with something called the innovation premium and it's an index. And so here's the way it generally works. Uh, a company like salesforce.com. When you look at their market cap, I don't know what it is today, but let's I'm making a number, $100 billion. They, they, they would say, okay, $60 billion of that is based on traditional metrics, but $40 billion of that is not. And it's based on the fact that the market perceives Salesforce as an engine of innovation and therefore is positively rewarding their stock price. And so the best example I can give today is from my hometown of Detroit. I'm in Detroit, which is Motor City. So we have General Motors here. General Motors has incredible infrastructure, a long history of profitability. They have significant revenue. They have multiple brands, on and on and on. So by all rational measures, that company should be worth more than Tesla. There's no rational measure you can share with me that says General Motors should be worth less than Tesla. Yet Tesla's trading, I don't know what it is today, but like 20 times the value of General Motors. And again, smaller brand, less footprint, less revenue, way less profits, on and on and on. And so what's happening is that Tesla is enjoying an innovation premium. Investors are marking up the price of that stock because of its perceived innovation abilities, whereas General Motors is, is, is unfortunately getting an innovation tax or an innovation penalty because we don't perceive that company to be innovative. So I would respond to, to, to the board in your example with data to say, let's look at it. And I can go deeper on that, but like there's all these studies, study after study that show demonstratively, again, putting preference aside that show companies that are more innovative have higher engagement, higher profitability, higher growth, higher market cap, period.
it's a financial bet as much as it is, as it is an intrinsic one. And I've seen that similar dimension happen before when we looked at brand value, right? You know, you'd see, you know, there was um, a classic example, I think when Reebok, not the best example these days, but it was bought by Adidas for a crazy amount of money pre-CrossFit and all these things they invested in later on. But the business was making a huge loss. So any financial spreadsheet jockey would look at it and go, you know, it's not worth anything, but it still went for 3,500 million, whatever the figure was. So what's the correlation then between the brand effect versus let's call it the more tactical innovation? Is it, is it the output of the innovation in terms of product services or is it the perception of innovation that drives the value change? I mean, I think they both do. I, you know, the, the perception is, is it, it, it does drive value because, you know, if, if let's say there's company A, company B, they both have the same financial metrics. Company A is thought to be really boring and dull. Company, uh, or sorry, company A, company B is, is really um, more, more compelling and interesting and innovative. Who's going to attract better talent? Who's going to win more customers in the marketplace? Who's going to attract investment capital? And so what happens is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The company that projects as innovative ends up getting all the things that in turn create real value. Similarly, though, the company that has real revenue growth and profits, let's say ahead of their, their counterparts in a similar industry, when you really peel it back, you say, well, why? Is it because they're better at buying raw materials? Is it better because they can cut costs out of their healthcare? No, it's, be, it's because they found a better way to serve customer needs. They found a more creative a way to, to, uh, to, to land business. They're, they're, they found a, a more uh, uh, imaginative way to recruit top talent. So when you really peel back the onion and say, what is driving the, the economic values that, that we care so much about? It's generally not raw mechanics. It's generally tied some way or another back to human creativity. Excellent. And what's your view as, as we shift to more technology-driven, AI-driven companies? What's, what impact is that going to have on, on creative and innovation? To me, it, it actually prioritizes it because I can no longer compete doing just the basics. You know, like, like I learned long division by hand in, in, in school. Yeah, so and, did I. And, yeah. And so, I mean, nothing wrong with problem solving in math, by the way, but, but so I, and I'm not being boastful, but I've created 10,000 jobs. I've bought and sold companies, hundreds of millions of dollars of assets changed. I've never used long division by hand once. And in, as, as technology increases, you think I'm going to now all of a sudden use it in the future. So I think that the quote unquote hard skills that we've learned in the past because of AI and automation and stuff are going to become less and less valuable. You know, whereas these, these quote unquote softer skills are the true, that, that's what humanity is all about. And that's what ultimately creates the most value. So I think, again, we've really had a, a flip in the last few years of what's, what's mission critical and what's optional. You're starting to see this in the types of jobs also that are coming forward as well, because, you know, that importance of the human element in creating things or problem solving, as we've discussed tonight, becomes a premium role, a premium capability, because the rest, you know, can be automated or increasingly automated. So I agree with you on that as well. Let's so speaking um, of technology, I just real quickly. So yeah. I want to get tactical because I know you're talking about. No, no, we're going to get tactical. I want, I want, I want people to walk away with some things here. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so let, let's think about this. So in 1958, a number of new technologies came on the scene. The first magnetic tape for storage. There was the Rolodex to keep track of your contacts. The first video game, which you could barely make tell what it was. And this new technology came on for idea extraction called brainstorming. So now here we are in 2021. You don't need a Rolodex anymore because you have LinkedIn. You, you magnetic tape, you can put the whole Library of Congress on a thumb drive. Video games are more real, realistic than the real thing. Yet we're still using the same boring, ineffective, outdated technology known as brainstorming. So I am like anti-brainstorming. I actually prefer a term called idea jamming. 
And over the last couple of decades, I've really spent a lot of time studying and, and experimenting, trying to come up with better technology, better techniques to bring ideas forward. So I'd be happy to share one or two if, if it's helpful to you. Yeah, I think what I'd love to, to sort of finish up with this evening is, you know, what are some things that people can take away that they can apply? It doesn't matter what size of business it is, you know, if they want to bring more creativity, more innovation in. So let's start with what you just went into, because I'd love to understand the change or the transition from brainstorming to, what do you say, idea jamming? Yeah, so under idea jamming as a broader category, I've I've actually built 13 individual tactics to replace brainstorming. Oh, wow. So I'll give you a couple. (laughs) We're not going to go through all 13, but I'll give you one. Let's go through the big ones. Yeah, I'll just give you one. So, So brainstorming, one of the core issues with it is that fear creeps in. In other words, you're in a room and and you might have some crazy idea, but instead of sharing that, you share your safe ones. You hold your big ideas back because you don't want to look foolish or you don't want to offend the boss or you don't want to be judged or have to be responsible for the idea. So there's an inherent flaw in brainstorming because again, we we our, our, our inhibitions shut us down. Here's the simplest way to fix it. And you can, some for all of us to try. It's a technique that I've developed called role storming, R-O-L-E. Here's how it works. Instead of brainstorming as yourself, you are role storming in character. So you are pretending that you are somebody else while you're coming up with ideas. So here's the example. Let's say we are in a room, bunch of big, fancy, important people. They were very intimidating. And and if you're brainstorming as you, again, you might hold back your weird ideas. But now let's say you're playing the role of Steve Jobs. Same business, real challenge you're taking on, but now you're pretending that you're Steve. Well, no one's going to laugh at Steve for coming up with a big idea. They might laugh at Steve for coming up with a small idea. So now you are totally liberated. You can say anything you want, no fear whatsoever. So the technique is so simple. Every person in the room chooses any character they want to be, but they have to stay in character. So you could be uh, someone from the Roman Empire. You could be a villain. You could be a movie star. You could be a supermodel. You could be a rock musician. And you pretend that you are that person instead of yourself. And you would be blown away by the creativity. I did this once with a group of executives at Sony Japan. And I met this guy. He was the stiffest human being I've ever met. Dark suit, white shirt, his tie is strangling him. Anyway, we got him roll storming as Yoda. <laughs> and I've never seen personal oh, transformation wow. like this. This dude's jacket's off, his tie's undone. He's like leaping around the room and he filled the whiteboards with ideas. And so crucially, if I asked him before that session, are you creative? 100% he would have said no. And I didn't teach him to be creative. It's inside him all along. And it's inside you and everyone listening. But we gave him a different technology, a different technique. And he was able to liberate that creativity. That is really simple, but incredibly impressive. Because I see it. I can totally get it. Like, you know, as soon as you are not, you know, in your head, so to speak, then, of course, you're unleashing all that creativity to be able to express yourself. Wow. Okay, let's do a few more. Yeah, sure. You're not allowed to do just one. Let's let's do a few more because I think this is the practicality and the simplicity of that is awesome. So let's keep going on that um, on that path. Yeah, another fun one I like to call the bad idea brainstorm. Yeah. So presumably we get together to solve a problem. We better come up with some good ideas. Everyone's watching. Time is you know time's ticking. Here's the way this works. It's a two part brainstorm. Part number one: instead of looking for good ideas, you generate bad ones. What's a terrible way to solve the problem? What's awful? What's what's immoral? What's illegal or unethical? So you set a timer for like 10 minutes. Everybody brainstorms bad ideas. And it's hysterically funny. The, the energy goes through the roof. Then, crucially, you're not going to do any of those bad ideas. You then say part two, let's examine the bad ideas and ask ourselves, is there a little nugget in there? Is there a kernel that we could flip around a bit and make it a good idea? 
And so what happens is when we normally come up with ideas, it's very incremental. In this case, you push your creativity so far to the edge. And yes, you have to ratchet it back to reality, but it gives you a wild head start. So the bad idea brainstorm is a very fun one. Yeah, that's great. I, I, and I'm just thinking as you're expressing that as well, that there are some companies that might grab a few of those ideas and actually roll them. <laughs> yeah, they might. And, and by the way, that, you know, a bad idea, I'm not going to mention stand any. up a little edge. It might, might be okay. Yeah, There's another exactly. one, really, really simple one. I call it the judo flip, J-U-D-O, like a, like judo. So yeah, yeah. the judo flip is this. Let's say you're taking on a challenge or seizing an opportunity. So first you take an inventory. You write it down. What have you always done in the past? What does conventional wisdom dictate? What do all your competitors do in a similar situation? Then you draw a line down the page and ask next to every entry, what would it look like if I judo flipped it? And I would define a judo flip as simply doing the polar opposite. If everybody goes cheap, what would be the most expensive? If everybody is focused on one thing, what if we focus on the opposite thing? And so there's study after study, example after example, where people judo flip, do the polar opposite of conventional wisdom to unlock fresh possibility and meaningful results. Wow. Is, is all of these different, um, let's call them tactics in your book, or is this just stuff that you've amassed through the years and, and you know, they're all in your brain somewhere? <laughs> These are mostly in, in my book and I, and they certainly all are all online at biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And um, anyone who's listening, if you want to go there, if you want to buy the book, awesome. But even if you don't, there's a whole bunch of free stuff there. There's a list of all these 13 tactics. There's a, a free assessment tool. There's a downloadable quick start guide and a bunch of other goodies. So there's a big toolkit waiting for you. It's free at biglittlebreakthroughs.com if, if you like where this is going. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And I was before, you know, again, in preparation for uh, having our conversation today, some of the people who have endorsed your work is just super incredible as well. So definitely go and have a look at that. And you can see some pretty big names who are, I mean, you are, you are seen as certainly the global expert in innovation, right? You know, across multiple different sources. And I think tonight, just getting a taste of that, you know, even a small way has been massively interesting for me personally, and I'm sure very valuable for everyone listening. Um, one final couple of questions, if that's okay. What's your advice as, as we, as we recall this, as I said, we're coming out of, COVID, the pandemic is starting to soften a bit. The world is opening up, maybe not in the UK, but in the US it certainly is. Um, what do you, what's your advice to you know, CEOs, business leaders, as we start to move forward you know, in terms of how they can you know, accelerate, hit the ground running, bounce back, whatever expression we want to use um, as they're coming into this, into this post-pandemic opportunity? There's a wonderful quote. I forgot who said it, but the quote is that when patterns are broken, new worlds emerge. Mm, cool. And I think to a degree, COVID has done that. It's, it's almost like the world has hit a giant reset button and patterns are broken. The way we lead, the way we sell, the way we shop, the way we eat, the way we love. And so when patterns are broken, there's new possibility. And I think that if a leader says, hey, good news, COVID is almost over. I'll go back to doing what I was. That is not a winning strategy. Whereas those that say, this is an opportunity for me to rethink the possibilities, to, to re-engage in the creative process and to, to create a new future rather than trying to cling to an old one. And I know that sounds a bit cliche, but there's a real opportunity here. You know, unlike others in the past, you know, let's say you were a challenger brand. I know many companies listening are scaling up. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're competing against a giant multinational you know, behemoth. Well, maybe in the past that was so difficult to crack into because customers were used to doing business with them. But when patterns are broken, new worlds emerge. So now more than ever coming out of the pandemic, there's been so much uh, 
turmoil, so much change that opens up fresh opportunities for us. So I would say that this is perhaps one of the greatest times in business history for, for smaller companies who are in the middle of scaling up to seize new customers, to seize new talent, and to seize new opportunity. Yeah, brilliant. And yeah, I, I saw that even through the whole COVID thing, you know, there were opportunities. If people could get, get their mindset right, you know, and and trust that, you know, they could actually do well through what was a lot of ambiguity and change, there were a lot of smaller businesses that compete with the bigger ones, just simply because, you know, things like advertising was cheaper and things like that, that would not normally be available to those companies. So I love it. So last, last two questions, if that's cool. So um, where in Detroit can people um, come and find you playing jazz, assuming that you do that? I do. It's been a little slow during COVID, but I still play regularly. I love the art form. And there's YouTube clips of me and stuff, but uh, I have to play at a club here in Detroit called Cliff Bells. It was this really beautiful club built in like the 1930s and it was closed down for like several decades. And maybe 10, 15 years ago, a new owner came in and and restored it to its original grandeur. It's got this beautiful like domed copper ceiling. It's it's very like uh, uh, old school, but it's got a beautiful, beautiful room. Awesome. Okay. Well, I knew there'd be an answer to that question. We did start talking about jazz, so we're going to finish it. And you've already mentioned, um, obviously, the book, Big Little Breakthroughs, which I'm going to say, go and buy now, everybody, if you want to start to go a little bit deeper into some of the things that we have covered today on the show. Uh, And where can people find you more uh, generally, Josh, if they want to reach out? Sure. And by the way, if anyone likes audiobooks, I, I had some fun on the on the recording. I recorded it myself, but I actually play Ooh. jazz in between every chapter. So I put a little music in there to, ah. to spice things up. So that's kind of fun. So I please excuse that. my sloppy. My no, book. I love that. I think I think that's that's awesome. I've seen that. Um, I saw there was a, a book by David Goggins when he came out and he actually stopped, he read the book, but then he stopped halfway through and did like an almost like a mini podcast. Just makes the whole thing significantly more interesting. So cool. yeah, it was kind of fun. So, but anyway, to answer your question, um, I'm on all social handles, just my name at Josh Linkner, which is J-O. O-S-H-L-I-N-K-N-E-R. And I have a website of my own, which is just joshlinkner.com. Again, J-O-S-H-L-I-N-K-N-E-R. And um, I'm pretty chill and easy to get to. So if anyone has any questions or I can be helpful in any way, truly, it's my pleasure. And, and I, I'm so grateful to be with you today. Great questions, great conversation. And I really believe this in my soul. I know it sounds like cheesy, but I believe it, that all human beings, all 7 billion of us, have dormant creative capacity. I do, you do, we all do. And if we can bring that creative capacity to the surface, the world is just a better place. Our businesses are better. Our education outcomes are better. Our environment's better. Our communities are better. It just, we, we are better as a humanity and we have it inside of us. Let's bring it out and let's use it. Awesome. Well, let's, let's finish on that tonight, Josh. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Scale Up Your Business. I've enjoyed the conversation. Not that I had to be convinced the creativity, innovation were powerful things, both in life and business. But, you know, the fact that we've gone a little bit deeper today on those topics has been amazing. So thank you very, very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.